At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. The International Space Station is expected to be retired in 2030, closing a multi-decade chapter for humans in space that has been funded by governments regardless of the geopolitical strife on Earth. The next chapter will be commercial. NASA has taken steps to open low Earth orbit to commerce and private sector innovation, even doling out some dollars to companies developing their own habitats. Voyager Space is one such startup, with its Starlab one of three projects pre-selected by NASA to potentially become a commercial successor to the ISS. Our vision of space stations going forward is they'll be special purpose. Ours is very much leaning into the lab uh, and on-orbit experimentation part of the market. Uh, if you look at the ISS today, it's about $400 uh, million of research done per year. And I'm in the camp that says uh, supply will create demand, not address demand, because part of the reason more research isn't done on the ISS is it's quite difficult uh, and quite long lead time to get experiments set up. Astronaut time is also a bottleneck. Uh, you have to schedule astronaut time down to, you know, 15-minute increments. And we know this because we're the largest commercial user of the International Space Station via our acquisition of NanoRacks. So we, we know that model extremely well. Uh, so we have the service provider side. We have optimized hardware side. We have an international consortium because we have a joint venture with Airbus. And we're going to be addressing what I think is the most important part of the market, which is the research part. Uh, so it's a very compelling... Uh, economic model, and uh, we have investors very, very excited about that. Dylan Taylor started as an early stage investor in the space sector, but realized if commercial space was going to get off the ground, it would require the ability to scale. He started Voyager Space, a holding company, to address that, acquiring businesses and building a portfolio focused on space infrastructure. On this episode, I speak with Taylor, Voyager's chairman and CEO, about space stations, his own spaceflight with Blue Origin, and the plans to go public the traditional way. I'm Morgan Brennan, and this is Manifest Space. So, space infrastructure company, that's the headline. Uh, but it's built around this premise that new space is a real thing now. The technology is real, it's matured. Uh, we can get to space reliably and expensively um, and uh, frequently. What hasn't happened particularly well is it hasn't scaled particularly well. And so the whole idea was, can you create a company that has prime level, prime contractor level capability, but preserves new space innovation and entrepreneurialism? That was the notion behind it. And so we formed Voyager really as a platform company uh, an operating platform you know, similar to, let's say, a Danaher or a Heiko, to assemble capability, to um, capture uh, parts of the value chain that really the primes were the only companies capable of capturing, but do it in a way where you're innovating. And that model was really validated when we won the CLD contract, one of three companies to build 
uh, the replacement to the International Space Station as a prime contractor. And in our industry, there's a huge difference between being the prime and being a subcontractor, not only in terms of the capability you need to perform, but the economics that you're able to capture. Uh, so we're very, very optimistic that we have a model now that scales. Uh, and what we'll have to be careful of is that we don't calcify and we don't turn into the big company prime along the way because we'll lose what really is our secret sauce, which is this uh, entrepreneurial innovative spirit that we have. So how do you do that? How do you ensure that, ha that, that, that the calcification doesn't happen? Yeah, I think you, you talk a lot about it. Uh, it's who you uh, hire probably also who you fire along the way. So people who um, sort of have the can't-do attitude uh, wouldn't be appropriate for that kind of culture we're trying to build. You know, the other premise we had was that the best people in the industry wanted to work for a company like Voyager. They wanted the best of both worlds. You know, I, I joke, uh, imagine uh, Elon uh, being a badged employee at Boeing or something, right? It's ridiculous. People who really have this hard-charging, innovative spirit want to work for a company where they have some maneuverability, they have some flexibility, they can put their mark on the company. So I think uh, we're attracting the best and brightest in the industry because we built a company that uh, speaks to them. So you, you talked about uh, being awarded a, a, a contract to develop sort of the next generation of commercial space stations to replace the ISS. Um, you mentioned that the economics are different, being a prime versus mm -hmm. being a subcontractor. Right. I guess just walk me through that, and then I want to get into the specifics of Starlab a little bit more. Yeah, sure. So the, the idea is that when you have the prime contract, you have the covenant directly with the customer. You can determine buy versus build. So what do you want to do internal versus what you want to outsource? And then when you do outsource, you determine the pricing of the supply chain. Right? So you have control over, let's say, the entire value bucket. Um, now, you have to perform, you have to execute, and there's some risk, and we've seen this with some of the prime contracts, where you make a commitment you can't deliver, and you're sort of upside down on the contract. Uh, so there's, there's risk in it, but there's also high reward if you can perform. Uh, when you're a subcontractor, you still have some risk, because you're bidding on a particular contract, but you're sort of a price taker, not a price giver. And so if you look at any supply chain based industry, typically the higher up you go on the capability scale, the more economics you capture, the more value you capture. And that was really the notion behind Voyager. And, and by the way, that's part of the reason why I think typical aggregators of market share in our industry haven't done particularly well. Uh, private equity, which is tremendous, I respect completely. They typically think in terms of assembling market share. So by company A, buy its competitor company B, put them together, take some cost out, grow the top line, put some leverage on it, sell it to someone else. We don't see it that way. We see it as assembling capability. So you take capability A, complementary capability B, and it unlocks capability C, which is higher up the value chain. And um, if you look at the way the primes have assembled capability, that's, that's exactly what they have done. Uh, so I think we're unique insofar as we're really focusing on the capability piece first uh, as opposed to market share. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why the industry hasn't aggregated the way other industries have. Yeah. And of course, you're in a very unique position to, to talk about what that looks like mm -hmm. at Voyager and as a prime contractor versus, say, private equity entering the space and, and looking to put companies together because you really you started as a space investor. That's right. I um, did. 
Yeah, I, I want to get into that a little bit more too, and and your history and, and this this career path. Um, but first, just in, in terms of Star Lab, mm -hmm. um, how much, given the fact that Voyager is um, a holding company, how mm -hmm. much is being done uh, within the supply chain? How much is the is the supply chain vertically integrated versus how much you're outsourcing? Right, we're attempting to vertically integrate quite a bit of our supply chain. So, for example, Zen Technologies which uh, is a Cleveland-based, human-rated uh, infrastructure supplier, uh, was in our supply chain for Starlab. We acquired them, uh, I think it was in February of this year. And so uh, that was really a win-win. They were looking for uh, what was next for them. They had a founder who was looking to retire. He had uh, anointed a successor, but they weren't really sure, you know, go it alone is difficult in this market if you're not at scale. Uh, and they didn't want to sell to a strategic. Most people don't because then you're sort of gobbled up by the, you know, the larger uh, uh, calcified company, if I can refer to it as, as such. Uh, so for a lot of employees uh, who had been in an entrepreneurial environment, that wasn't attractive. So we provided them a very attractive opportunity. It was good for us because we could capture those economics. We could integrate that supply chain piece into our program have more control over the outcome. So classic win-win, super creative for us, uh, super beneficial to them. So I would anticipate more transactions like that. Um, you know, we're on a public company uh, glide path. We have ambitions to at least target that as an option for us. And so, as you may know, when you do material uh, acquisitions, then you have to sort of re-audit, you know, reset your audit timeline so we need to be a bit mindful of that but we definitely definitely intend to do more vertical integration more acquisitions so let's talk a little bit about the stats for star lab the mm -hmm. value proposition we know the iss is going away right by the end of the decade we know the commercialization of low earth orbit is is upon us walk me through the economics well the economics i think are compelling so first of all I believe the ISS number to date is about $440 billion. Um, and part of that was there was no master plan for the ISS, right? It was sort of assembled over time, added to um, lots of sort of, um, uh, you know, measure once, cut once, as opposed to measure twice, cut, cut once. So I think um, we have an advantage because we can visualize this and uh, design it from scratch. So I would anticipate our total cost, when we haven't revealed, revealed exactly what that's going to be, is going to be massively less than the ISS. So your sort of fixed costs, your hardware costs going in are much, much, much lower. The other, benefic benefic uh, the other benefit of having this master plan is we can optimize it for specific uses. So our vision of space stations going forward is they'll be special purpose. Ours is very much leaning into the lab uh, and on-orbit experimentation part of the market. Uh, if you look at the ISS today, it's about $400 uh, million of research done per year. And I'm in the camp that says uh, supply will create demand, not address demand, because part of the reason more research isn't done on the ISS is it's quite difficult uh, and quite long lead time to get experiments set up. Astronaut time is also a bottleneck. Uh, you have to schedule astronaut time down to you know 15 minute increments. 
And we know this because we're the largest commercial user of the International Space Station via our acquisition of NanoRacks. So we, we know that model extremely well. Uh, so we have the service provider side, we have optimized hardware side, we have an international consortium because we have a joint venture with Airbus, and we're going to be addressing what I think is the most important part of the market, which is the research part. Uh, so it's a very compelling uh, economic model, and uh, we have investors very, very excited about that. When do you target having Starlab in orbit? 2028 is sort of the headline number, um, and I, I feel reasonably good about that date. ISS will be in orbit. Uh, currently, the federal government is saying through 2031, and then it will be deorbited. I'm very confident Starlab will fly before that date, uh, but right now it's 2028 is the target. You mentioned the fact that you're the largest commercial user on, on the ISS. How are you using it? Uh, we're running missions for other uh, entities, so governments, companies. Uh, typically, people come to us because it's quite difficult to get a mission done on a one-off basis. So I think we've done missions for 35-plus countries uh, to date. It's right around 2,000 missions we've done on the ISS. So wow. um, it's everything from schools and universities to nation states to companies. Uh, we have our own airlock on the International Space Station. It's the only privately owned permanent fixture to the International Space Station. And so we're using that as well to run experiments. Uh, that's a human-rated uh, airlock. So those are some of the things that we're um, working on today. Yeah. And you just had this recent successful installation of a self-built payload called Gambit to that airlock. Yeah, we, we did. And you know we're looking for different ways to utilize the airlock. So for example, uh, one notion is um, TLR uh, uh, ratings. So how ready is your technology? And obviously if it's nine, that means it's flown in space and it's worked in space. Those final stages of readiness are difficult because you actually have to take your hardware from the bench on the earth to space. And typically you're gonna have to run a mission. Those missions are extremely expensive. You need your own dedicated launch. Um, you need to put your hardware in space. You need to capture it. You need to get the data back. Whereas if you have an airlock, think of it as being a lab bench in space, and you can set up the experiment or the hardware uh, in the airlock, uh, literally open the door, and you're in space by definition, run that experiment, and you know it's, it's almost like a readiness minting machine in a sense, and much easier uh, for you to qualify technology. So that's another way, for example, that we can use uh, the airlock. So I'm going to ask the, the question about the competitive landscape, yeah. because we do have a number of companies developing uh, commercial space stations. Yeah. And then, of course, there's SpaceX with um, Starship, which has been bandied about as a possible contender as well. Yeah. Um, how do you, I guess, how are you thinking about them? Is there, is there going to be room for everybody in this, in this new commercial LEO environment? I don't know if there's going to be room for everybody, but there will be multiple space stations flying for sure. Uh, Starship is very compelling, I think, for short-term missions, for sure. I think it's less compelling for like a 10 or 20 or 30-year life. Um, so I, I think Starship will have a role to play for sure. Uh, we have Axiom that's going to attach to the International Space Station. And um, full disclosure, I'm an investor in Axiom. Uh, they're all friends. You know, we're wishing them the best. Uh, they have a couple of challenges. One is they have that four-meter design, which is the design for the ISS. Um, Volume-wise, that's pretty small 
you know, you've seen astronauts sort of be able to touch the walls a bit. Uh, Star Lab is eight meters, so it's literally a three-story building. Uh, so I think, I think that's one challenge. I think the other challenge is they're in the ISS orbit, and that's not an optimal orbit. Um, we have the ability and others have the ability to choose our orbit. Uh, that being said, I think Axiom has a good model, and um, I don't see any uh, thing that would prohibit them from getting into space, but I, I don't think it's an optimal model. We have uh, Blue Origin, we have Northrop Grumman, we have ourselves on the CLD contract. I think all three of those are, you know, chipping away at their milestones with the, uh, NASA. Um, Blue Origin now has the HLS contract for the moon. Uh, they're trying to get uh, New Glenn flying. They're trying to get New Shepard flying again. So they have a lot of priorities. Um, our number one priority is, is Star Lab, so that might be one difference. Um, and then Northrop, I think, you know, they're probably the best hardware manufacturer in the world right now, um, especially now that Boeing has struggled a bit. Um, so I, I think they can't be uh, discounted. Mm. And then you have new entrants like Vast uh, and yeah. others that have, I think, really unique notions, uh, but they haven't put any hardware in space, right? And that's, that's a higher standard uh, than, you know, a PowerPoint presentation uh, or a business model in an Excel spreadsheet, right? You actually have to fly hardware and it has to work. Um, and space is hard, like everyone says, it, it really is hard. So. I got to go back to something you just said, and that is, and I'm thinking about this $440 billion price tag on the ISS. Mm -hmm. That's not optimal orbit. Why not? Well, um, my interpretation is it was management by committee. So it was really the Russians and the U.S. determining that orbit. And uh, the Russians wanted to launch out of Kazakhstan. Uh, we wanted to launch out of Florida. Um, or actually, I'm sorry, the Russians probably wanted to launch out of Russia. We want to launch, launch out of Florida. Um, basically, it's a high energy orbit, uh, and it's also a data scarce orbit. So if you and I were building a space station, putting in orbit, we would, um, we would optimize for the amount of energy to get there, uh, and we would want to reduce that. And we would also pick an orbit that could collect data. So uh, let's say sun synchronous or polar or one of these other orbits that um, a lot of the data collecting, telemetry collecting satellites are in. And uh, the ISS is in a, in a sweeping orbit and it's in a higher energy orbit, but it's sort of management by committee. That's pretty much how we ended up there. It, it was a political decision, not a commercial decision. Shocker. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> uh, are you still, I mean, you mentioned that you're, you're invested in Axiom. Are you still actively making investments in space companies right I, now? I'm not. I'm not just because running Voyager, I'm also chairman of our board, and um, taking institutional capital, I've sort of committed to uh, downshift on my personal investing, not only in space, but pretty much everything else, um, just to make sure that I minimize any conflicts, perceived conflicts. Yeah. So, so when does Voyager go public? I mean, we're starting to see some potential green shoots in the IPR, IPO market more broadly right now. Yeah, um, you know, I, I'm optimistic that we have the type of company that would be attractive. Uh, our investment bank is Morgan Stanley. Um, we have, you know, PwC as our auditor. We have Latham as our law firm, Latham New York. So we're putting the right pieces together to um, be in a position to go when the window opens. It's not guaranteed that we're going to go down that path, uh, but it's one of several options we're considering. 
I like what I see in the capital markets right now. I like the fact that the listing market seems to be thawing a bit. And, um, you know, could we get public in 2024? Um, I think that's a possibility. Um, and we certainly have ambitions to, uh, to do that. And as you know, I grew up in the public markets, right? I grew up running public companies, so I'm very comfortable in the public markets. I believe in the public markets. I think new space deserves a proper S1 filed public company yeah. as opposed to, you know, let's say a SPAC oriented public offering because uh, they are different. Um, yeah. and, and if you could have a proper S1 company, you know, with a Morgan Stanley lead left and other prominent banks on the book that's successful, I think that would do a lot for our industry. So that's part of the reason why um, I think it's a desirable possibility for us. Yeah, and to your point, I think it probably marks a milestone in terms of this convergence of the new space economy and the capital markets, right. what that means for investors. So you mentioned several options, though, several. Well, let's say going public <laughs> and not going public, let's say. Okay. But, um, you know, the typical ones would be stay private, uh, have a capital partner that um, maybe takes control of the company and, and sort of finances it. Uh, selling to a strategic, uh, going public. A couple of those are non-starters for me personally, um, but I think um, we need to keep all options on the table, at least at this point, um, until we are certain that uh, one of those options is the best choice for us. And right now we're trying to keep all, our, all the doors open right now. As someone who grew up running public companies mm -hmm. in other industries yeah. as well, and then got involved in space investing, I guess just lay out for me how you ended up here, yeah. amassing a new space holding company um, with the possibility as soon as next year of going, going public as a, as a grown up new space company. Yeah, well, so I did grow up in, in the public markets, finance, banking, real estate were the three industries and, and electro electronics, participated in four IPOs along the way, uh, ran companies at scale, you know, multi-billion dollar, P&Ls with lots of employees. Honestly, it wasn't very gratifying because my first love had always been space. And you know, you reach a point, I think we all do perhaps in our careers, where you're successful in quotes, but you don't feel like you're living a purposeful uh, life. You don't really understand you know, what's my impact, what's my legacy. And so those were the kinds of things going through my mind. Space had always been my first love. And so reflecting on that, um, it really was uh, a choice about how do I get involved in the industry without maybe jumping, you know, without uh, a parachute, so to speak, um, from one industry to another. And at that time, this is going back quite a ways, the industry really was struggling with early stage capital formation. And so I thought to myself, I have, I have money. You know, we, we pay our public CEOs very well in this country, as I think we all know. Uh, so I had capital, I had, I thought, some good business experience and maybe some scar tissue from um, what to do and what not to do. And what the industry needed at that time was early stage capital and maybe some business mentorship because you had a lot of technically led firms. So I wasn't you know, thinking I'm some great investor or anything like that, but I thought this is a way for me to participate in the industry, get to know the players, um, be close to an industry 
that I have a lot of affection for. And so that's how I got involved. And um, you know, at that time, really no one, I remember I had friends who were snickering uh, about my investments. You know, you're investing in an asteroid mining company and you know, all these kinds of things. Um, but ultimately, those same friends ended up calling me saying, how do I get involved in space investment, right? Because we, we went full circle. So that's really how my journey started. And then as I got more and more uh, recognized in the industry and more involved in the industry, then I thought to myself, what does the industry need now, right? We had sort of solved the early stage capital formation problem. And in reflecting on that, I thought to myself, we need scale. We're not scaling particularly well. And without scale, ultimately, the new, new space industry is not going to be successful. And so that's why I chose to focus on how to build scale. That's when we came up with the notion of Voyager uh, and informed Voyager. And it's honestly exceeded my expectations because we won the prime contract for the ISS about 20 months after being founded, which is pretty extraordinary when you think about it. Um, so we. It tells me we have a good idea, it tells me we have a good team, and um, I think we're just getting started. I think, I think Voyager has the possibility of being an extremely significant company uh, in this industry. So scale is upon us. Scale is getting there. I think, you know, execution is difficult, uh, integration is difficult. We've acquired seven companies. So imagine the integration across seven companies. So I, I would say we're getting there. I'm not gonna declare victory yet, but I do think scale is a priority because without scale, we're not gonna be able to do the things that are really significant infrastructure-wise. Uh, because the companies that have the capability, the primes, which I, I, I love them, they're, they're lovable, uh, but they'll admit um, they're not particularly innovative and they're not particularly ambitious because they don't need to be, right? They're, typically printing money on the defense side of their business. So on the space side, they're sort of like, tell us what you want and we'll build it, as opposed to really you know, uh, anticipating where the market is going and trying to push the industry forward. They're, they're just not in a position to do that. Hmm. Um, final question for you, because mm -hmm. you, you went to space. You, you flew to the I edge did. of space I did. with Blue Origin. Um, what was that experience like? And how has that, I guess, impacted or shaped or helps nurture the way you're thinking about this as a business now. Right. It was a life changer, truly. Uh, it's something you can't unsee or unfeel. It's something that's so deeply penetrative. Um, you know, it, it, it's one of these things that it's a thousand times better than I even anticipated and I had pretty high expectations going in. Um, how has it changed me? You know, everything I believe going into it, uh, space being a tool for transformation, space being the next big thing for civilization, for humanity, space being a template by which we can reimagine what humanity can be. Um, that all was the way I felt going into it. What this has done is really increased my sense of urgency around it. And um, I founded a nonprofit called Space for Humanity. We're really trying to get um, everyday citizens up to space. We sent the first Mexican-born female, first African-born female, first mother-daughter Caribbean, um, uh, astronauts to orbit and so that's a huge passion of mine to, to sort of share this gift with, with other people. So I, I would say increase the sense of urgency and it's just validated what I believe going into it uh, but I highly recommend it Morgan. I, if you can get the hall pass from your husband you should definitely go to space. <laughs>
I, I'm trying. I'm working on it. He's uh, he's on board, but we'll see. I know there's a. Uh, there's some wait lists attached. True. That's true. <laughs> Dylan Taylor, thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate My pleasure. it. pleasure. That does it for this episode of Manifest Space. Make sure you never miss a launch by following us wherever you get your podcasts and by watching our coverage on Closing Bell Overtime. I'm Morgan Brennan. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease. Plus, it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored, soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive.